You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. You may think it's kind of strange to show up for church on Sunday, Easter Sunday and hear the preacher read Acts chapter 10. You probably weren't expecting that. You were probably expecting one of the gospel readings, the resurrection narratives, John 20, Luke 24, maybe 1 Corinthians 15, that great extended passage where Paul explains in detail his attitude and understanding of the resurrection and the consequences of denying it. Jesus' resurrection, the resurrection of all believers. You may have expected something like that. You probably weren't expecting to hear about Peter and Cornelius. When you're preaching through a whole book of Scripture and special days come up, there are decisions to be made. And I consider kind of, hey, you know, it's Easter, we're going to be together, we're going we're to have guests and family members who are with us, and, and, you know, we could step back and do the normal Easter thing, you know, the normal Easter thing, and read one of the normal passages. And then I read through Acts 10 and thought, This is an incredible Easter passage because the whole thing comes to this amazing climax where Peter proclaims Easter. Like that's what this is about. The whole thing is driving to this proclamation in chapter 10, verse 40, but God raised him on the third day. And when Peter does that and declares that people are saved Through faith in Him, the resurrected Lord, what happens? The Holy Spirit falls on people it had never fallen on before. Falls on people He had never fallen on before. And so we come to Acts, and we get to this text. And we read it through the Easter lens, right? If we kind of put on our Easter glasses, and we read through the Bible, we start to see resurrection coming to the surface in places we don't normally see it come to the surface. We don't come to Acts chapter 10 expecting Easter. But on Easter, when we read it, we find it's all over the place, isn't it? And so we're reminded that the resurrection drives not only this passage, but the whole narrative of Acts. And it's particularly important because this is a crucial passage casting a crucial vision for what kind of church Jesus died and was raised to create. Have you ever asked that question? What kind of church does the resurrected Jesus want? What kind of church did he die to save and was raised to fill with his life? When we come to Acts, it's unavoidable. That the resurrection of Jesus creates a mission-oriented church. We've heard a lot about mission already today, and that's entirely fitting. Because in Acts, resurrection and mission are knitted together into a unity. And I think that's helpful for us, because I'm not sure we always take those categories and take them together. I mean, we talk a lot about the resurrection, and we talk a lot about Easter, and we talk, you know, it's, you know, put out the Easter lilies, and... Seeing Christ the Lord is risen today. That's what we do, isn't it? But how frequently do we, do we 
catch a vision for the coherence between the resurrection of Jesus and the fact that the resurrected Lord has a vocation for us. And that vocation takes a crucial step that it had never taken before in Acts chapter 10. When non-Jews, outsiders, Gentiles, become a part of the people of God as full, equal members. Before this, the people of God were a single ethnicity. Now, the people of God have instantly and forever become a multi-ethnic community. And this is the first step. And it's never, it's been that way since then. So the resurrection of Jesus drives that. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundation for it. The resurrection of Jesus undergirds everything, and the resurrection of Jesus permeates the message that we proclaim. The resurrected Jesus is overseeing and ordering and governing the things that happen here. And so we're going to take a look at the things that happen here a little more carefully and attempt to see more clearly how the mission is driven by the resurrection and how the resurrection creates a mission-driven church. So you got this guy Cornelius, and you notice how the scene kind of goes back and forth, right? We get a few verses on Cornelius, then we get a few verses on Peter. And then Peter goes to visit Cornelius, and we get some, some information about what they did together. So there's kind of three sections there that we're kind of following through. So we meet Cornelius. He's in a city called Caesarea. Caesarea is on the coast. It was a, kind of a crucial military stronghold for the Roman Empire in this part of the world in the first century. So you got the Roman Empire. I don't know if I should do east and west this way or east and west that way. But you got Rome in the western part of the empire. Judea, Jerusalem, that's in the eastern part of the empire. Caesarea is a crucial city. Like, build the fort, put the soldiers there. You got ships coming in, there's trade. Like, this is important. So we got Cornelius, and he's there. Now, he's not your typical Roman soldier, because we're told that he's a God-fearer. And God-fearer, one who fears God. Some translations render it a little bit differently. We're told he's, he's a centurion, he's a soldier, Verse 2, he's a devout man who feared God. And uh, if you read the, the Greek, right, it, it literally says he was a God-fearer. It's like one word just kind of all shoved together, right? And what that means is, like, it was, a, it was kind of a technical term. It didn't mean like, oh, here's some people who have, like, this certain respect for God. It was a technical term for a non-Jewish person who observed a significant portion of Torah, right? So if you were non-Jewish in the first century... And you didn't want to go quite so far as circumcision, <laughs> for obvious reasons. But you still thought there was something to the Jewish religion, and you wanted to honor their God, and you believed their God was true. You could kind of have a little bit of status on the, on, like on the edge. You were still an outsider. You couldn't go in to the inner precincts of the temple. There were significant limitations on how involved you could get. You're still a Gentile but at least you're a Gentile who knows the Jewish God is the real God. And that's, there's something to say for that. So that's the kind of guy Cornelius is. And he takes this seriously, right? We're told that he prays constantly to God and gives generously, gives alms generously. So this guy is living into Torah, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. He's, he's, he's giving generously to the poor and the giving of alms, and he prays 
to Israel's God constantly, right? So this is, this is a God-fearer. This is the kind of person we have. He's serious about his religion. He's not a Sunday, Wednesday kind of, like, I'll show up if I have time, right? He takes it seriously and gives his full energy to it. And then one day, God sends a messenger, and it, it messes him up. He's terrified. And you just think about, it, like, this guy, Centurion, he calls the shots, doesn't he? Like, people do what he says. He's a part of an occupying force. They are occupying a foreign land and installing Roman governance over it. And then an angel shows up, and he's terrified. But the angel brings good news. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. And this is the first thing, remember I said early on, pay attention to the stuff people don't know. First thing that is unknown is Peter. And Cornelius doesn't know who Peter is. He sends his guys off. He's like, apparently there's some guy named Peter. Go find him. He's staying with another guy named Simon. Like, go seek him out. He's lodging with Simon a Tanner, whose house is by the seaside. And when Cornelius' representatives show up, they go to the house. And they're like, hey, we're looking for this guy, Peter. Anybody know who he is? They don't know. Who knows? Jesus knows. And one of the first ways that we see how the resurrection drives the mission, it's the fact that Jesus is the resurrected Lord, enthroned in heaven, mission control for the kingdom of God. Remember, heaven isn't out yonder on the other side of Pluto somewhere. Heaven is near it is mission, it's like mission control where Jesus calls the shots for the kingdom of God. The one who reigns in heaven calls the shots on earth. That's the theology of Acts. Heaven isn't somewhere you go, like, you, or at least you hope you do. Heaven is where Jesus governs all things. That's how this works. And so Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he has ascended into heaven, which means he's in the captain's chair. He's calling the shots. He's directing it. And these guys don't know, they don't have all the details. Maybe you felt that way before. Maybe, maybe in your relationship with Jesus, you're thinking, no, Lord, I'm trying to trust that you're calling the shots. I have no idea what's going on here. I need you to help me out a little bit. You ever feel that way? Maybe you know what it's like to be in Cornelius' shoes. So he sends these guys off. And then we get a scene shift. We get to Peter. And Peter's doing his midday prayers. He's a good Jewish boy. Notice the contrast, right? Cornelius prays constantly, and Peter's praying at a specific time. So he goes up on the roof. He's hungry. He's like, hey, while I'm praying, why don't you guys fix lunch? And while he's waiting for lunch, he has this vision, slides into a trance. I don't know if you've ever been praying and slid into a trance, but that's what happens to Peter. Slides into a trance. He has this vision. It's a pretty famous vision. You've probably heard it before. It's like, imagine you're changing the sheets, and you grab all the sheets by the corners. And inside, and you kind of pull it together, and inside, you, there's just all these animals and things, like reptiles and birds and all the stuff, clean and unclean. And they're all right there in the one sheet. And Peter's like, <laughs> okay, I have no idea what this is about. I'm still hungry. Maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe it's hunger. Maybe it's a hunger vision, you know. You get a little delirious when you get, get kind of hungry sometimes. And then he hears a voice, Peter. Kill and eat. Go have lunch. And Peter's initial response is, ah, 
I'm a good Jewish boy. I don't eat that kind of stuff. Because remember, the sheet has all the different kinds of things, like clean and unclean. All the animals are in there. Peter says, no way. And then he's instructed. The voice said to him again, or, for I've never eaten, Peter says, I've never eaten anything that's profane or unclean. Clearly, there's some off-limits dietary things in here. The voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. And we're beginning to wonder, <laughs> maybe he's not talking about the menu. <laughs> maybe there's something else going on here. And just to be sure, Peter realizes this isn't hunger deliria. It happens two more times. And then it's taken up. So you get three distinct instructions, like visions and instruction from God. What God has called clean, you don't call profane. What God has said is sacred, you don't say is outside the bounds of purity. What God has said is in, you don't say it's out. God calls the shots. And again, right, Peter doesn't get it here. This is the second thing, right? We said, let's pay attention to the things people are missing. Like, they don't understand, and there's some details, and they don't have the whole picture. Cornelius didn't know who Peter was, but apparently God wants him to meet up. So he sends some guys off to find the, this random Peter guy. Peter, Jesus is talking to him. They are in different cities, experiencing different things. They do not know the other exists. Peter's having this vision. He's perplexed. He doesn't get it. But the image is of the resurrected Lord because the one who acts from the throne of heaven in like whether it says, hey, resurrected Lord, when Jesus acts, he is acting as the resurrected one. If his body's in the grave, he's not working. The resurrection undergirds, undergirds the entire narrative. And so you've got Jesus giving some instructions over here in Caesarea, and you've got Jesus from heaven giving some vision and instruction and commandments over here in Joppa, and these guys don't know the other guy's having a vision, and they don't know the other guy exists, and they don't know that Jesus is talking to the other person. But the Lord, the resurrected Lord, is at work in different places for a singular purpose, isn't he? In the same way, now, like nothing's changed, the Lord is at work in different places for a singular purpose. He is at work in Hope Hall, and he is at work in Guatemala, and he is at work in Sweden, and he is at work in Uganda, and he is at work in all places, and we don't have all the details, do we? But we know what he's called us to do. And these guys have got to learn, when the resurrected Lord who reigns at the right hand of God the Father Almighty gives a vision, gives instructions, sends his people you don't have to have all the details. You don't have to understand everything to do what he says. Amen? You don't have to understand everything to obey the resurrected Lord. Now, Peter's still puzzled about what's going on. Verse 17, what do I make of this? I know like, there's food in the blanket, but I'm not supposed to eat all of it. And I'm guessing there's something else going on here. Like, what's happening? And all of a sudden, Cornelius' men show up. And notice how they're asking for Simon's house by the gate. They're standing by the gate. So here they are. I don't know if they're just walking down the road, and you've got some houses along the way, and they kind of stop and go, 
hey, is Peter in there? But that's kind of the, they're not, they, they're at the gate. They haven't even gone to the door. They know, by the way, what Peter says later on, the Jews and Gentiles, they're not really supposed to hang out in the same house. Now, that's not an Old Testament commandment, but in the centuries, 100, 150 years before Jesus, we have texts, Jewish texts that say, that's a no-no, folks. Like, if you're a good Jewish boy or girl, you can't go hang out in a Gentile house. Don't, don't hang out in their house and be sure you don't eat with them. That's even worse. And so these guys are trying to respect that, and they call out whether Simon, who's called Peter, staying there. And Peter's still thinking about the vision, like he's just, you know, you've probably been in this situation where something's happened and the Lord's put something on your mind and you're, you're going on to the next thing, but it's still kind of there, you know, like it's still kind of rolling around. So he goes out, and the Spirit of God says to him, three men are looking for you, get down there without hesitation. Again, he doesn't know who they are, he doesn't know why they've come. He doesn't have to have all the details to be focused on obedience. So he goes. And, they, and he asked, like, why are you here? What's the reason for your coming? Well, Cornelius, a centurion, upright, God-fearer, well-spoken of among the Jews, was directed by an angel to send for you. So Peter says, that's enough. <laughs> we can break the rules. Come on in. He gets a little bit more of the story. The next day they go visit Cornelius. So now we're moving to Act 3, right? You got kind of scene 1, Act 1. Pick your metaphor. Cornelius, then we shift to the second section, Peter, and now we get Cornelius and Peter together. So you can kind of see how this drama is building. Next day they get up. By the time they get there, Cornelius has gotten a congregation together, right? So we don't know how many people are here, but apparently he's like, Peter's coming. We don't know who he is. But uh, apparently the Lord's at work, so let's get a, let's have church. Let's get a congregation together. So they bring some people together, some of his household, other believers. Uh, you know, Peter brings some folks, so like there's, there's a group here by the time they all get together. And when he gets there, you know, they got to sort things out. Cornelius kind of tells the story, and all of a sudden, you've probably had this experience, it clicks. Like the Lord's been teaching you something. Not quite sure what's going on here, but I'm pretty sure the Lord wants me to do something. Not quite sure what's happening, but maybe there's something new. Maybe there's a calling, a vocation. Maybe I need to make a shift. Whatever it is, something's going on. And in this moment, it clicks for Peter. You might have had that experience. Where all of a sudden, you step into a room, and the light bulb comes on. This is what the Lord wants. And all of a sudden, Peter realizes that vision wasn't about lunch. It was about the mission, and it was about the people who are supposed to be a part of the people of God. So Cornelius fills him in on the stories. An angel said, I'm supposed to send for you. And Peter starts going, made with the same, like all at the same time, you're having a vision over in this city and I'm having a vision in this city. And the resurrected Jesus is providentially governing the kingdom of God. And it's time for a new step. And Peter says, God has shown me, God has shown me that I shall not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection because he is realizing that those dietary regulations, 
the vision with all the kinds of animals, and he was resistant, wasn't he? It was preparing him for something even more revolutionary, even more countercultural. Peter, you're going to be the first person to see the Gentiles receive the Spirit. Don't call them unclean. Don't call them profane. If the Spirit of God loves them enough to take up residence in their body, you guys sit down at the table together and share a meal and fellowship and worship the one God together. So Cornelius and Peter go inside. A little more details, a little bit more of the story. And then Cornelius says, hey man, the Lord told me to listen to you, so I'm ready. What do you have to say? And what does Peter do? Peter does what Peter always does when he has a platform. He starts talking about the resurrected Jesus. And he talks only about the resurrected Jesus. And he talks about the identity of the resurrected Jesus and the implications of the identity of the resurrected Jesus for Cornelius, for Peter, for you, and for me. So I'm going to read through this again. We're going to look at a few aspects of it. And we're going to listen carefully. Like if this is how the, like if this is the resurrected Lord creating a certain kind of church, multi-ethnic, and this is the thing that's said at the beginning that governs that union, how to, like, who is this Jesus and what does he want from me? What are his claims? And so Peter's explaining Jesus who he is and what he's done. So Peter begins to speak in verse 34. I truly understand God shows no partiality, right? Persons like one ethnic group, the Jews, are not favored over another ethnic group or all the other ones in one big group together, the Gentiles, right? God shows no partiality. Like, it's like Peter kind of knows that in principle, maybe, but now he says, I truly understand it. Like, this is real. The Lord is speaking to you, and He's speaking to me, and He's not favoring me, and He's bringing us together, and He's doing a new thing. He knew this in principle, now He's beginning to see it in reality, that God shows no, pers- no partiality between persons of different ethnicities. Most of the rest of the human race does, by the way. And we know that all too well, don't we? But the church, governed by the resurrected Lord and filled by the Holy Spirit, is supposed to be a place that is different. And that happens at the start. In this place, the church is marked by impartiality with regard to human ethnicity. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Anyone who hears him, anyone, and the point here is Jew or Gentile, African or Asian, light skin, dark skin, like everyone, that's what's going on here, isn't it? In every nation, anyone who hears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. People are not left outside because of where they're born. People are not left outside because of their ethnic background. People are not left outside because of their background or their skin color or their language or their dialect. 
They're not left outside the people of God. Peter sees clearly for the first time anyone who offers themselves to Jesus has His favor. And that means they are brothers and sisters in the family of God. Anyone who does what is right is acceptable to Him. You know the message He sent to the people of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, who is the Lord. And this is the claim, right? This is one of the first claims. Jesus Christ. It's not enough for Peter just to say Jesus Christ. He's got this little, this. let's pause for a minute and remind you, Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. All people, all nations, all emperors, all presidents, all parliamentarians. He is Lord of all. All Jews, all Gentiles. All. The Lordship of Jesus is a claim on our lives. And it is a claim made by the resurrected Lord who sits enthroned at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The Lordship of Jesus is only Lordship if the resurrection is true. You don't call someone Lord who is decaying in a tomb. I don't think. Do you? I don't. <laughs> I don't think any of us do. And you get like you get this kind of thing around it happens all usually there's a book published by somebody who's got this new religion or spirituality insight, right? Just last night somebody shared some I can't remember if it was a senator or representative, but they shared his tweet. He was kind of like, yeah, you know, the truth of Easter isn't really about bodily resurrection. It's about how God loves everybody. I'm like, no, it really is about bodily resurrection. That's exactly what it's about. And if it's not about that, it's a lie. It's not real. It's not a thing. Go home. Like if Jesus' body is still in the grave, I quit. I'm going to go do something else. Deal? The reason the mission exists, the reason Peter is in Caesarea declaring that Jesus is Messiah and Lord to outsiders is because Jesus' body is not in the tomb anymore. The resurrection of Jesus creates the mission because the mission is given from the one who is our Lord, who reigns in heaven. And if he doesn't reign in heaven, literally, like if there's not a resurrected body in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of God the Father, we are fools. And I quit. But if there is a resurrected body seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty right now, we have a mission. It's not an option. We have one thing to do, and only one thing to do. And what is it? It's to do what Peter did. It's to go to our neighbors and our nations and our kids and our grandparents and everybody we can find on the face of the planet, whether they live next door or in Sweden or wherever, and make sure they know Jesus Christ is Lord. That's it. There's nothing else to do. So Peter says that. That's where he starts. Before anything else, you know about Jesus. He's Lord of all. Message spread. 
We've been talking about him. Got us in a little bit of trouble occasionally, but the message spread. John the Baptist was baptizing people. Jesus went around healing people, doing acts of charity and goodness and miracles and made some enemies. And so they put him on a tree and killed him. And then we get verse 40. And this is why this is an Easter passage. Because in verse 40, we read, after he says they put him to death by hanging on a tree, Acts chapter 10, verse 40, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, right? So Jesus, like think about how this could have gone differently, right? Jesus could have come out of the grave and just gone ahead and done that global revelation, like boom, everybody in the world, here he is. But he doesn't do it that way, does he? Like one day, every eye will see him. That's coming. But apparently he has some purposes before that. And what is it? He wants people like Peter, people who formerly denied they knew him. People who are his mission, he wants them to participate as agents of his mission. So he makes them witnesses. The denier is now a witness to the good things that Jesus did to his death and his resurrection. Not to all people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, who ate with him and drank with him after he, after he rose from the dead. Notice how the resurrection permeates this again and again and again. It's not some random Lord. You know, I remember a couple years ago, the first time I read uh, a book by this scholar, he said, you know, Jesus didn't bodily rise from the dead. It's just the disciples got together and had kind of a mass hallucination. Dude actually said that. I don't know what they were. I don't know what they were getting into, but that was the claim. PhD in a book. If that's true, I quit. The resurrection permeates Peter's sense of vocation. It's not a trip. It's not a hallucination. It's a fact. It's a reality. And it just shows up again and again and again. And I don't care if you know, politicians on Twitter or PhDs in published books come up with all these reasons why we shouldn't think it's legit. If it's not real, I quit. Peter wouldn't be in Cornelius' house if the resurrected Lord reigning in heaven were not providentially governing him and guiding his steps in that direction. So that's what he does. And then we find out more about Jesus. He commanded us to preach the gospel. Right? Because that's what the Lord does. The Lord says, preach the gospel. And that vocation has been passed on from the apostles to believers in every generation. That's our vocation. And it's not just the clergy vocation. It's not just the preacher's vocation. It is the vocation of the church to preach the gospel. Don't share the gospel. You share cookies. Preach the gospel. Preach it with everything you have. You're not making an invitation. You are declaring a historical fact that Jesus Christ is resurrected and ascended at the right hand of God the Father. That's not something you share. It's a truth that you declare and proclaim with every ounce of conviction that you have, and you put everything you've got on the table, and you leave nothing left. It's all or nothing here. All or nothing. 
Jesus is resurrected and he's Lord of everything or we go home. He commanded us to preach the to preach the gospel to people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge. And now we get a little worried. <laughs> we can maybe live with Jesus being Lord. We talk about that a lot. But now Peter's got to go and get all judgmental. Jesus is the judge. And that's strike. Like when I read, I'm reminded sometimes it's striking to me, right? What does it mean for Jesus to be judge of everyone living in the dead? And I think about this sometimes. I think about this in my ministry. Like, what kind of account am I going to have to give to the Lord one day for the work that we've done? I frequently think about this when a leadership decision has come up, when a difficult decision comes up, when it would be easier to do the easy thing and very painful to do the hard thing. What will I say to Jesus when he says, why didn't you use every opportunity to make sure the maximum number of people heard the gospel with the time, the tools, the resources, and the breath in your lungs that I've given you? What are we going to say to him? Think about this, brothers and sisters, when you decide whether or not you will gather with the church next Sunday. Think about it when you open your mouth to speak to people you love. Am I ready to give account to Jesus for the words that are about to come out of my mouth? Am I ready to give an account to Jesus for what I'm about to write on Facebook? Because you will have to. All of us will. The good news is, the one to whom we must give account is the one whose hands to this day are scarred because he loves us. And it is to this day because he's been raised. To this day, the one to whom we must give account, the one before whom we will stand as our judge is the one who loved us to the end and the one who gives his spirit to outsiders, to people who used to be called unclean, to people who are sinners, to people who are, have hearts filled with darkness and people who are slaves to addiction and people who are Slaves to self-love. And this Jesus, who is our judge, is also our Savior. And He's a living Savior. And He's at work. He's at work in the first century. He's at work in the 21st century. And His work as the resurrected one is to build a people, a church, that is motivated, driven, and oriented to his mission, the gospel for our neighbors and the nations. We have one thing to do. So when, when my life then is oriented to the mission, to the gospel, then my life begins to take on a certain character. 
When I discover that my judge is also my savior, that the one to whom I must give an account is also the one who bled for me, that he's also the one who was raised from the dead so that I could be justified, so that my sins could be forgiven, and he accepts me, he accepts us, then that comes to bear on the whole of my life. All of it. Every day of the week. Every moment. When the gospel infiltrates my life, my life becomes oriented around the gospel. And that means, that means I have to change. Now, change, right? We don't like that. We like to be, like, I've got my routines. I do things a certain way. I imagine Peter felt like he had some routines and some expectations and that he did certain, certain things certain ways and then God fooled around and brought Gentiles into his people. Like, he wasn't going into the house. These guys, they show up, they don't go into Simon's house because they know they're not allowed. Peter, when he gets to Cornelius' house, he doesn't go in right away because he knows he's not allowed. I'm telling you, friends, you ain't never been through change in church that was as monumental as the thing that changed in Acts chapter 10. This is earth-shaking. This is groundbreaking. Jews and Gentiles do not hang out in the same house. They don't sit down at the same table. And they sure, if you're Jewish, you sure don't expect the Holy Spirit to show up in a Gentile house. Uh-uh. But when Jesus is Lord... And when Jesus, resurrected from, like, reigning in heaven, sends his church out, my preferences have to change. Because I'm not Lord anymore. He is. My expectations for what my life will look like have to change. And I'll tell you this, friends. I'm 42. And when I was in college, I think I had a vision of what my life would look like. Let me just tell you, it looks nothing like what I expected. When I was 22, I kind of thought I knew, like, I had a, like, like here's what it'll look like, and here's what things will be. My expectations had to change. I think I've learned it's better for Jesus to be in charge of that than me. I've learned it's better for Jesus to be in charge of that than me. And if I had insisted on my vision of my life and not his vision of my life, it would not be a life that honors him. And so Peter understands, Cornelius understands, that this Jew-Gentile ethnic segregation has got to go. It's over. And the exclamation point on that is when the Holy Spirit shows up. We have to be willing to embrace whatever, whatever Jesus calls us to do, whatever it is. He says, go here, we go there. He says, eat with that person, we eat with that person. No questions asked. We don't have to understand to do what he says. Because the resurrected Lord creates a mission-oriented church. And if we aren't willing to put our preferences and our vision of life, church, all the stuff on the back burner and prioritize what the reigning Lord in heaven wants, we will miss his best. And his mission will go forth and we'll be hanging out watching TV. And that's not where you want to be, friends. It's not where you want to be. You want to be in the middle of a mission that's where Jesus is.
You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hall United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.